All right, so let's talk about this. So I've mentioned, I don't know how many times, that my favorite outside of Jesus, right? If you're ever in Sunday school and somebody goes, who's your favorite character in the Bible and you don't say Jesus, they're like, you're a demon. My favorite non-God character in Scripture is Peter. I love Peter. He is just this incredible man that has this incredible roller coaster life. And I mention him quite a lot in sermons because I resonate with him, I like him, so I know uh, more about him than a lot of other uh, people read, we read about in Scripture. And so as I was sitting in, in, in the office this week going, what the heck am I going to preach about? I went, you know what's a good thing to preach about? Peter. Let me pick some big moments in his life. Now, I did not pick all of the big moments in Peter's life. It would be a much longer sermon series than it is going to be if I had done that. I picked out some of my favorites where Peter is shown in an awesome way and in a really bad way because he had a plenty of both. And so we're going to look at five of them, not today, five of them over the next six weeks because I won't preach about I won't preach this sermon series on Father's Day. There'll be a different message that day. So you'll get a little mid-series mid break right there. And then after that, so you have something to look forward to. I have another sermon series. As I was reading through, I was prepping uh, in, in men's Bible study. We're going through the book of John. And I was prepping for later ones. We're not going to get to where I was at on Wednesday uh, unless we just fly through it. But in the chapter 4 of the book of John, the word life is used 15 times. And then, throughout the book of John, Jesus has seven statements where he says, I am the blank, the bread of life, stuff like that. So, the next sermon series we're going to have is Jesus' seven I am statements. And we're going to look at what does that mean about him. But today we're talking about Peter. So you guys have stuff to look forward to. Today we're talking about Peter. So, story of Peter, part one. Fisher of men. One of the most popular sayings out of scripture, right? You're a fisherman. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. It's cool wordplay. It's nice. We read about it in both Matthew and Luke. And I'm going to, we already read the Matthew passage. I'm going to read it and preach out of Luke for this one. Luke is my favorite of the four Gospels. It's the most detailed. I like the book of Luke the best. So you're going to hear a lot out of the book of Luke the next couple of weeks. So get used to it. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gensaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. He sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. I'm going to restart verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. 
And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. So in this passage of Luke, we don't get the, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. That's in Matthew. doesn't matter exactly how Jesus says it, because he wasn't speaking English, so it wouldn't have sounded like that anyway. Um, he would have been speaking at, at that time, maybe Jewish, probably Aramaic, um, possibly Latin. He probably knew some Latin because, again, Rome ruled the world at that time, but uh, Latin was not, they didn't force you to, to learn Latin, and it wasn't spoken throughout the entire empire. Um, so just history lesson for you. So first off, this is not in your note sheets, but I have mentioned this before in a sermon. So I want to know how many of you were paying attention. This was a couple of years ago, so we'll see. Why does Jesus go in the boat to preach? Sound travels better over water. So he didn't have to shout as loudly. Peter wasn't in the boat. Jesus got in the boat and said, Peter, come row me out. Sound travels better over water. Jesus was a smart man. It helps when God created science that he then understands scientific principles better than I do. But he didn't have to shout as loud because he's got this whole crowd and they don't have microphones back then. So, sound over water. That's just a, I like interesting tidbits. That's one for me. Number one are your note sheets, the proof. Number one, the proof. I mentioned before, and if you look through a timeline of, of, of Peter's life, this is not his first encounter with Jesus. There is another encounter in which Jesus tells him he's going to be Peter, that I'm going to rename you Peter. And then Peter goes fishing again. And so we find him here. Jesus knows Peter. Now this is where he knows Peter comes into play. Because Jesus goes, he's mine, and I'm going to get him. I'll go to him, and I'll get him. So he goes, it was not a mistake whose boat he chose. He did choose Peter's boat, specifically. Because he knew what he was about to do with Peter, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, as well. It's always really weird to me. We read it in Matthew that it's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and their father Zebedee was also in the boat. I never, not never equate, but... When you just read James and John, the son of Zebedee, that's just kind of like their name, almost. And then you find out and recognize that somebody's actually named Zebedee. Is anybody here going to name their newborn son Zebedee? No? The proof. Jesus doesn't just say, Peter, follow me, and Peter does it. There is proof involved in it. First thing that happens is, Peter's got to sit there and listen to Jesus' sermon. The whole time he's in the boat. Jesus goes, Peter, take me in the boat. I need to speak. I need everyone to hear me. All right. He does. Peter's not out swimming. He doesn't have earplugs in. He's sitting there listening to whatever Jesus is saying, and we don't exactly know what this sermon was. Right? Maybe it was a salvation message. I don't know. Maybe it was part of the Beatitudes. We don't fully know. But the fact of the matter is he does have to sit and listen to Jesus. So he hears the words of God. Now, the fact of the matter is that you and I will never hear while we live on this earth a sermon preached by Jesus. He doesn't speak anymore with his vocal cords like that. He speaks through this. Peter hearing Jesus' sermon is the same as you reading about the words of Jesus. It's the same thing. So the fact of the matter is you are held accountable for it. 
Even though Jesus, Jesus is not up here beside me preaching. He's not. Sorry. It's just, it's just Sam. I hope and pray that I'm preaching what he wants preached, but it's just me. A bunch of angels and demons as well, but we won't get into that. But we have his words. We have multiple of his sermons. We have who he was, and we have the people he inspired to write this book. All 66 of them. You don't have an excuse of saying, well, Jesus didn't speak to me. Yes, he did, and he does every time you open this book. Secondly, Jesus shows who he is. Peter is a fisherman. He is at least 30 years old. How do we know that? That's when you become a man. How do we know he's a man? He's married and has kids. We read about that. In fact, his wife and kids end up getting saved at one point. So Peter is at least 30 years old. So Peter, so he's been a fisherman a long time. How do we know that? He's at least 30 years old. He would have gone into his father's business, because that's what you did. You either followed in your father's footsteps, or you became a rabbi. He's not a rabbi, so he's got to follow in his father's footsteps. So he's been a fisherman his whole life. He knows quite a lot about fishing. The best spots, the best times of the night, the best times to do this, stuff like that. He knows what to do. He's good at it. And he hasn't caught anything all night long. There's, it's just, that happens. How many of you like to go fishing? How often do you guys just not catch something? Or catch something that's small enough to not even make it worthwhile, right? I don't understand fishing or hunting. I like the fruits of other people's fishing and hunting, but to sit there in a tree or in a ground blind or in a boat like this. But either way, he's a good fisherman. And Jesus says, go out into the deep water. We're going to catch some fish. How do we know Peter already knows Jesus? He, what does he call him? Master. He already knows this guy. And he goes, all right, master, I didn't catch anything. I, you're a carpenter. You don't know much about fishing, but I'll do as you say. Out into the boat. And not only is the catch the biggest one of Peter's life, it's so big it starts to sink two boats. Jesus uses his words, and then Jesus uses his actions as proof. He performs a miracle. Now, we don't think about this as a miracle in the same way we do, you know, the five loaves and the two fish. We don't think about this as a miracle in the same way as, you know, turning water into wine or raising people from the dead or healing the sick, stuff like that. But this right here, it's a miracle. He caused a miracle. Here's your definition of a miracle, by the way, in case you wanted to know, your basic definition. Something that goes against the established rules of science. Dead people are dead. To bring them back to life goes against the established way that God created. There's only one person who can truly work miracles, and that's the one who made the rules in the first place. Just saying. Demons and stuff can try to perform miracles, but they aren't true miracles. So, or I should say as well, God will give authority to somebody. Driving out a demon, that's a miracle. So here we go. Jesus performs a miracle. He uses... His actions as well as his words. And he used his actions in your life as well. You ever had a cut that healed? Anybody in here? A little scrape? That's a miracle. It's a healing process that should not happen because you have sinned. Your body was created to heal. 
But it shouldn't happen because of sin. Yet God chooses to make it happen. That's a miracle. I've got plenty of miracles in my own life. Times I should have been literally dead that I am not. Because God said, no, not yet. God uses his words right here. And his actions, if you're willing to open your eyes and see them. So you could try to find, Peter couldn't make a rational explanation. Jesus got lucky. There were a lot of fish right here. He could come up with a rational explanation. It just wouldn't be true. And too often, you and I, and this world, tries to come up for rational explanations to the things God does. Go ahead, keep trying. It will never be adequate enough. There is no rational explanation to the Red Sea being parted. No wind and earthquake did that. It was God. There was no rational explanation for the entire world being flooded. That was God. He used the waters of the deep, but that was God. There's no rational explanation for so many things, even in your own life, if you stop and truly think about it. God's hand is evident, even in the life of an unbeliever. And we see Peter's response and reaction to all of this in verse... Eight, boy, the verse that I had so much problems with. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter is scared. He's got an idea of, of who he is dealing with, and that terrifies him, as it should you. Grace is an incredible thing. Mercy is an incredible thing. The fact that you get to deal one-on-one -on -one with God should terrify the living crap out of you because he is God. Capital G. The Bible says don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. That's him, and he's the only one, and that's who you're dealing with. That's who died on the cross for you. So, Peter's response to all this is terrified, but he's got proof. Number two on your note sheets. Number two, the call. The call. So he's terrified. Peter is trembling before Jesus, saying, please go away. I'm a sinful man. For, for, for idea, fishermen in that day would have been very similar to in their attitude and language and stuff like that as they would be to um, like construction workers or restaurant workers today. I had no idea until I worked in Red Robin during when I was in college that you could use the F word for every single part of the English language and make a complete sentence until I heard my friend next to me when a very large order came in, string four or five of them together, and I went, I'm pretty sure that was a sentence that had a subject, that had a verb, it had an adjective, my word. They were coarse men. They used language. They talked about stuff that you, it, it, that's who they were. And Peter knows it because he's one of them. And he goes, don't come near me. No, I, I'm not worthy. Please go away. And quite frankly, that should be our response as well. I'm not worthy, Lord. Please go away. But here's the amazing thing, because Jesus' response to him is exactly his response to us. We read in the next couple of verses, Jesus has a plan for him. Notice this. Jesus does not ask him to come with him. He doesn't say, now, Peter, 
Would you be willing to come with me and I will make you a fisher of men? Would you be willing? What does he say? Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. There's no question in that. It's a statement with a period. I have a plan for you. And here's the thing, church. I'm not going to get into the idea of predestination and stuff today because it's already 1033 and we'll be here most of the rest of the day if we get into all of that. But the fact of the matter is that God's not asking you. He's telling you. That's it. And you can try to run from it. Peter did. Cost him a lot. Jonah did. Cost him a lot. People try to run from God. None of them have succeeded and neither will you. It's not a question. It is a statement. You will be catching men from now on. I looked down at my notes and I read B. Use an analogy they get. And I went, is that for me? Am I, did I not come up with an analogy and I just wrote on the note sheets, use one they'll get, you'll come up with it later. But no, Jesus uses an analogy they get. That's what I should have said. There wouldn't have been confusion. They're fishermen. They know about catching fish. Bait, getting, the, getting them in, the right time, striking when it's the right time. And Jesus knows that. And just as he does throughout the rest of his life, he uses an analogy or a metaphor that they understand. He goes, you won't catch fish. You're going to catch men. And it's the same thing. You've got to use the bait, Christ. You've got to strike when it's right. And sometimes you're going to go fishing night after night after night and feel like nothing's happening. And then Jesus finally goes, go out again. And you go, and it sinks the two boats because it's so full. And I don't just mean with billions of people. I mean it might be just one person you've been working on. But the fact of the matter is that it's an analogy that works. And he uses it because it makes sense to them. And what I always have found amazing is verse 11. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Left how much? Everything. I mentioned it earlier. Peter is married with kids. He follows Jesus. He's got a fairly, it seems, lucrative fishing business, along with a bunch of his friends. Now, he doesn't have to leave all his friends behind. Two of them go with him, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But they were willing to leave family, money, comfort, ease, all of it for Jesus. Now, Jesus may or may not be calling you to leave family behind, but in a world that says XYZ is right, and you stand up and say, no, it's ABC, there will be people that leave. There will be. That's the way it works. You might have to give up friends. I was talking with somebody uh, about um, a specific sin struggle that, 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 that they had, and I said, you won't ever get over this until you rid yourself of every influence that pushes you that way. Friends, TV shows, whatever, you will not be rid of it until you rid yourself of it. Everything that pushes you that way. We talk often about, well, God's number one and family's number two and friends are number three and my cats are number four. And... But the fact of the matter is, I do remember where this started, by the way. 
This part wasn't planned, but I remember. Number one should be Jesus, and there should not be a number two. There shouldn't be. Because everything else is so far behind that you can't even see them to count them anymore. I love my family. Not to, not to um, try to crush anyone in here, I think I have the best family. We're not perfect. We fight. There have been some very loud shouting matches. There have been a lot of tears in the 28 years I've been alive. We have disagreements on things. But I think I've got the best family. They are nothing in comparison to Christ. I think I've got the best cats. Actually, that's not true. I think I have the best pets. Because a cat is better than... I watch videos. And it'll be like... It'll be like a tiger. And they're just, they just love head scratches. And so they're just big cats. And I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to have like six of them. And I'm just going to love on them and I'm going to ride them into battle. And you might see, what battle, Sam? I'm, I don't know, paintball, I don't care. I'm just going to ride one. So here's the thing, though. We like to order the important things in our lives. What was important to the disciples? Jesus. They left everything behind. To follow him. Most of them would lose their lives. There's only one that died a natural death. John. And he was um, exiled to a rock to die. He just wasn't put to death. You are called to leave everything behind. Everything. If, cause, if following the cause of Christ means I never watch a Phillies or Eagles game again. I must do it. I'll be sad for a little bit, but I must do it. I'll be sad for a while. No. That's why you can ask Maddie, when I was looking for a wife, I had a list of qualifications, and one of them had to be she was going to join me in ministry and walk this road with me. Because if she was not going to do that, I had to leave her behind. It was important to me. I can show you guys the list one day. I still have it. It's like 17 items long. One of them on there is that she had to do the laundry. I, desp I will do every other chore in the house. I'm not against doing chores. I'm not like, women should be barefoot and pregnant and do all the chores while I sit on the couch and watch the game. No. In fact, who does most of the chores in the house? I'm not opposed to doing chores. I just despise doing laundry. Who does the laundry in the house? I still do it. It's okay, because it wasn't that big an important thing. That was, it was on there, not as a joke, but as a, eh, it'd be kind of nice if I never had to fold my socks again. You don't fold them, you, you, you wrap them up. I laugh because there's like four or five guys in here going, nah, just throw them in the drawer. So here's the thing, right? You're supposed to leave everything behind like they did. They left everything and followed Jesus. Now, did they go back on that at points? You bet they did because they were still men. They were still human. You will fail at times. I'm not up here saying I haven't. I have. You will fail at times. But it's important to choose to leave everything behind. Let's apply it for real. Because it's 1042 and mom's going to yell at me today. I told her we're going to be late today. Okay. So you might ask yourself, we're under let's apply it. You might ask yourself, Pastor Sam, where is my proof? It's right here. If it's not good enough for you, so be it. But that's your proof. There are 66 books in this thing. 39 in the Old Testament. 27, is that the right math? 
27, thank you. 27 in the New Testament. Written by a plethora of authors over the course of about 2,000 years. All of it says one thing. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. That's it. There's your proof. We all have a calling on our lives. Now, your calling might not be, and in fact, for most of you in here, and probably all of you, your calling is not to stand up in front of the church as the pastor and preach the word. Right? There's a very select few who are called to what we would call vocational ministry. Okay? Your calling is found in Matthew 28, verse 19, going to all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Your job is to preach the gospel. Whether it's in front of a crowd of 10,000 people, whether it's being Billy Graham and reaching millions of people worldwide, or it's the person in the cubicle next to you. I was talking to my uncle yesterday, and we had the, or on Friday, and we had this really long conversation. And part of it came, part of what we talked about is, does, do, do your coworkers know that you're a Christian? Or if you told them, would they go, oh, I never knew that. Do they know? Is it so pervasive about everything that you are that they're annoyed by it? Because you should be. But you have a call on your life to preach the gospel through your words and actions to everyone around you. That is our call. So, I have a, I have a, a practical application for you today. Here's your practical application for this week. Meditate on the call of Peter. It's those last couple verses there in Luke chapter 5. Verses, well, it's not the last verses, but of that section. Specifically, verses 10 and 11. What does it mean to meditate? We've talked about this quite a lot, so I'm not going to spend 10 minutes going all over it again. Meditating often does kind of involve some form of memorization, so I got gotcha. you. Worked around it, but I got gotcha. you. Think about it. Mull it through. Work through it. Pray through it. Because you have the same call on your life to leave everything and follow him. And you might not be in a place where you can do that yet. I understand that. You need to work to be there, though. And you might have been in a place in your life five years ago where you were able to do that, and today you're not, or vice versa. And there will be times in your life when you are rearing and ready to leave everything for him. And there will be times in your life when you're trying to desperately hold on to everything. Christ is still there and he's still calling. Leave everything and follow me. It's not about our wants. It's not even really about our needs. It's about what he called for us to do. We're going to see over the next uh, month or so that Peter's going to have a lot of failures, a lot of successes. That Peter's going to have this incredible time in his life and be willing to die eventually for his Savior and does die for his Savior. But there's a reason that he's the rock upon which Christ is willing to, wants to build the church. You and I aren't the rock. We're not. But we get to be part of it if we're willing to let God do it and follow after his call. The same exact call he gave to Peter right about 2,000 years ago. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning. Um, I thank you that you put this call in our lives. It's not an easy call by any means, but you put it there nonetheless. 
I praise you that you don't leave us just to do it by ourselves. Just as you trained Peter and the rest of the disciples, and then you sent the Holy Spirit to them, you've sent the Holy Spirit for us to walk us through this. I thank you, as we're going to see for the life of Peter, this incredible example of a man who was willing to give it all, and then not, and then was, because we're fickle just like he was. And I thank you that you love us still. I pray your blessing over our week, and it's in the name of your Son that we pray, amen and amen.